0: C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. On more than one occasion, I have listened to someone talk and wasn't exactly sure of their ultimate destination and their reasoning process. And so I've looked at them and said, What are you driving at? What is your conclusion? Well, in a sense, as I read the opening chapters of the book of Romans, there are times when I feel like saying that to the Apostle Paul. Uh, For years now, it's been my privilege to study the Scriptures and to teach them. And in all of the books of the Bible that I've taught and all the passages I've gone through, I don't think I have met a more complicated, complex passage. Than the first three chapters of the book of Romans. It is a very tightly woven, to say the least. Because of its complexity, I have had a tendency to, in these opening messages on the book of Romans, to review so that we keep clearly in mind where Paul is. Permit me to do that one more time. Because Today, we're going to come to the conclusion in these opening chapters. So it might be helpful if we understood very clearly where Paul has been so that we can see what he is concluding. I would remind you then that in chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, he started out saying, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. From that point on, throughout the rest of that chapter, he talks about the fact that all men are sinners, and more important, they are under the wrath of God. All are unrighteous, and all deserve wrath. Beginning in chapter 2, he speaks not to the unrighteous, but the self righteous and in those opening verses, verse 16 verses of chapter 2, he talks about the fact that no one can look down their nose at someone else, so to speak, and say, well, you are unrighteous, but I'm righteous, because if you even begin to understand the standards of judgment, you know that all will be judged. As you read that paragraph in the opening verses of chapter 2, you sort of get the inkling that he might just have in mind the first century Pharisee or Jew. And sure enough, as he gets down to the end of that chapter, it becomes very clear that he has the Jew in mind. So in the latter part of Romans chapter 2, he talks about the fact that the first century Jews, those who were so committed to doing the Mosaic Law so that they could be uh, rightly related to God, would also be judged, and that even their circumcision, that part of their religion that they thought was the sign and badge of their relationship with God, would be no help to them at all when they stood before God. Now when we come to chapter 3, he starts moving toward a conclusion. In the opening verses, the first eight verses, he starts out saying, well then... You know, to hear you talk, the, advantage, the Jews don't have an advantage at all. And he explains that they do have an advantage in that they were given a copy of the Scriptures. They were supposed to, in turn, give it to the rest of the world. But um, in the final analysis, uh, their advantage is no advantage because they didn't take advantage of their advantage. Uh, now, in all of this, you can't help but ask, Uh, what are you driving at? Uh, What's the conclusion? Well, in Romans chapter 3, 9 through 20, Paul gives in a formal fashion his conclusion. And to put it mildly, it is awesome. Consider with me then Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 9. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They're all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongue, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul's conclusion is stated in a general way in verse 9. The proof of that conclusion is given in verses 10 through 18. It is basically a biblical kind of proof. And then in verses 19 and 20, he states the conclusion. So we're going to look at the conclusion generally, then we're going to see its biblical proof, and finally we'll state it in a more formal fashion. The general statement of it is in verse 9 where he says, What then? Are we better than they? And this refers to the immediate context of chapter 3 where he began in chapter, and verse 1, with what advantage then has the Jew? <clears throat> he is saying in verse 9, Well, uh, are you telling me that the Jew doesn't have any advantage when he stands before God? And uh, then he says, are we better than they? That is meaning, don't we have an advantage over them? We being the Jews. His response to that is a categorical, absolute negation. He says in verse 9, not at all. The Jew, even though he was given the Word of God as individuals, when he stands before God as an individual, I should say, He has no advantage at all. And he explains, he says, For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are under sin. Now, if you've got a pen, and you don't mind marking in your Bible, I'd like to suggest you just underscore the little phrase, They are all under sin. Notice he doesn't say they are in sin or they have all sinned, all of which is true. But in this passage, the conclusion is they are all under sin. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he says in verse 9 that he has previously charged, meaning in this book he has previously charged, that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Uh, The Greeks or the Gentiles he spoke of in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and perhaps even in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. The Jews he spoke of uh, probably had them in the back of his mind in that opening paragraph of chapter 2, in verses one to sixteen. But very clearly, by two seventeen, he explicitly refers to the Jew and does so down through verse eight. So he is saying, Everything I have said, you cannot study the book of Romans without coming to the conclusion that he has spoken to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. Some want to argue about where exactly to divide it, but in chapter one, verses eighteen, eighteen, Through 3.8, He is clearly, wherever you divide it, has spoken to the Greeks and the Jews, and what He has said in that section is all are under sin. Now, that little phrase apparently means several things. It means that they are guilty of sin. Being under sin, I am guilty of sin. Perhaps there is the idea of being under the power and sway of sin. And perhaps there is also... Included in that little phrase, the idea that I am exposed to judgment and condemnation. So the general statement in Romans 3 of his conclusion is that all men, however you divide them, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, bond or free, male or female, all human beings are under sin. Now, having made that general statement, he proceeds to prove it, and his proof is from the Scriptures. A matter of fact, some modern translations uh, print the, this portion of Scripture uh, in such a fashion as the minute you look at it, you see it's not uh, written like the rest of the text. It's uh, written so that it's blocked off, and you can see that these are quotations. Uh, he says in verse 10, as it is written, and then one quotation is printed right after another. Now, he doesn't quote just one passage from the Old Testament. He quotes uh, numerous passages uh, from the Old Testament, mostly from the Psalms, to prove that all men are under sin. Now, beginning at verse 10 and going through verse 18, there is just one scriptural quotation right after another. The little phrase as it is written in verse 10 goes all the way through verse 18. Now, How would you divide this uh, extended passage of quotations? Well, um, in its simplest form, first he gives the negative side. Uh, There is none, there is none, there is none, for example, in verse 11. Um, And then he gives the positive side, beginning in verse 13. So if you want a division of this, I would say that he first gives man's... uh, deficiencies in verses 10 through 12 or the negative side of man's sinfulness and then he gives the positive side if there can be a negative and a positive side to sinfulness in uh, verses 13 to 18 be all that as it may let's just very quickly look at all of these scriptural quotations to see how they demonstrate that men are under sin he says for example in verse 10 there is none righteous no not one That is a quotation from Psalm 14, verse 3. Now, we're not going to take the time to look all these up. That would take too much time. But uh, if you look it up, you will discover that actually what Psalm 14, 3 says is there is none good, no, not one. So Paul takes the liberty to change the word good to righteous. And I suspect that he does that because back in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, All are unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. So he applies Psalm 14 to this situation and says that's tantamount to saying that all are unrighteous or there are none righteous. The idea of righteousness, of course, means there's a standard of right and um, measured against that standard all fall short of it. We are all under sin. In verse 11 he says, there is none who understands. Then he says, uh, there is none who seek after God. That is a quotation from Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. It is simply describing the fact that no man understands the Word of God and no man seeks the will of God. The New Testament expression of that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not understand the things of God. They are spiritually discerned. Neither can he know them. They are foolishness unto him, Paul says in that passage. So it's not that he doesn't know them. It's that he can't know them. No man unaided by the Spirit of God can understand the Word of God. Now that doesn't mean that men aren't religious, they're incurably religious. It's just that they are willing to settle and be satisfied with externals in religion. that They really do not want the truth. I recently was talking to a seminary professor and uh, he'd come to speak to our college um, crowd and before he went on the retreat we chatted together and in the course of the conversation he said to me people don't want truth they want answers (laughs) well I just automatically assumed that the answer I wanted was the truth but you know what he's dead right people don't want truth as much as they just want an answer so they don't seek God they seek an answer that will uh satisfy them or at least justify them in their sin so Paul says the condition of men spiritually is they do not understand meaning the word of God and they don't seek the will of God then he says in verse 12 they have all gone out of the way they have become unprofitable there is none who does good no not one again this is a quotation from Psalm 14 Psalm 14 in the Hebrew text says that they are unprofitable and that Hebrew word in Psalm 14 was used of uh, something being sour like milk and sour milk is unfit it is unusable it is unprofitable and that is precisely what he is saying here they've gone out of the way that is they haven't gone in God's way Isaiah would said each one has turned to his own way they have become unprofitable because they haven't followed the way of God they are unuseful they are unprofitable they are unfit for him so there's none good no not one they're like cankered soured milk as far as the service of God is concerned The word that's translated good in verse 12 could be translated kind. They are not kind. Now you will object that there are unregenerate people who do kind things. And that's conceited. I grant that. But Paul is talking about their basic nature. The simple truth is that if you know human nature at all, you know that people will do kind things because it makes them look good or it's to their advantage. That if it comes down to a choice between their selfishness and kindness, they will most of the time choose the unkindness and they will go the selfish route. So Paul says there is none good. And perhaps he means to say that ultimately there are none who are kind. Now, uh, all those are negative statements one way or another. There is none, there is none, there is none, and there is none. Four times he says that in a negative way in those verses. Beginning in verse 13, he states the case positively, and more interestingly, he starts down the human anatomy. And like a doctor, he examines the patient from a spiritual point of view and looks at the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, and the feet, and ultimately, he looks you in the eyes and comes to the same conclusion that man is under sin. For example, he says, Their throat is an open tomb, and with their tongues they have practiced deceit. Now, this again is a quotation. We're back to as it is written in verse 10. This time it's a quotation from Psalm 5, verse 9. This is a comment by David In describing his enemies, they lied against him. And so he says, their throat is an open tomb, and with their tongues they have practiced deceit. What a vivid, vivid picture. Now, uh, what we do in modern times, if you'll pardon the exposure, is we don't like to look at death. So we embalm the corpse, we put it in a lovely casket, uh, we take it out to the cemetery and we camouflage the ugliness and the stench, frankly, and uh, we uh, plant flowers and grass and we cover over uh, the site of physical death. Now, Paul is saying in this passage, God looks past the cosmetics and sees what is really there, and it is a stench. So he views the throat as an open tomb. Now, we don't like for people to see what's behind the stone in front of the tomb. So with our tongue, we practice deceit. That little tongue is like the stone in front of the tomb. It keeps you from looking to see what's inside. It hides what's underneath or inside, the stench, the decay, the destruction, and the death. So we, we cover it all up. Now Paul rolls away the stone, says it's uh, deceit that's hiding what's really there. And down inside, beyond the tongue and down beyond the throat, in the heart, there is a tomb. Death, decay, and it's a stench that out of the heart, through the throats and through the tongue and over the lips comes sin and wickedness and evil. And so he rips back the curtain, so to speak, and looks behind the stage and sees the sin and the death and the destruction that are really there. So he says in verse 13, the poison of asp is under their lips. That's a quotation from Psalm 140, verse 3. The lips of this person would perhaps be more accurately described as the fangs of a snake. That with lips we kill people so that the poison of asp or a snake or a serpent is under their lips. Then he says in verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now he's gone from the tongue and the throat and the lips to just the mouth generally. This time he quotes from Psalm 10 verse 7. Instead of blessing coming out of the mouth, there is cursing. Instead of love proceeding out of the mouth, there is bitterness. All those things are in the heart and they come up through the throat and out of the mouth, So that in verses 13 and 14, he is describing our speech, our mouth, what we say. But what a man says is quickly transferred into what he does. So in verses 15 through 18, he talks about a man's deeds. He says in verse 15, let's drop to the feet and look at his actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's a quotation, but this time not from the Psalms. It is from Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. It is an abridgment of those passages. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Man is given to violence so that destruction and misery are in their way. They shed blood And as a result, other people shed tears. Their feet is swift to destroy. And consequently, destruction, verse 16, is in their way. Now, not everybody may practice that overtly. Not everybody goes and kills other people. But this much is certain, verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I think that it is uh, particularly interesting that he ends this description with the feet, talking about what we do, and what he puts in the feet is destruction or violence. There's a lot of uh, print and press these days on uh, the violence in films and the violence in the news report, the violence of our society. The simple reality is that that is the most basic nature of man. remember years ago, reading the book of Genesis, and uh, something about the book of Genesis didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Chapter one is the creation of the heaven and the earth. Chapter two is the creation of man. Chapter three is the fall. In chapter 4 is the killing of Cain. I mean, the killing of Abel by Cain. I thought, why did that get in here? And, you know, you get past chapter 5, which is a list of names, and you're into 6 through 9, which is the flood. Now, I can see the awesome themes of uh, creation of the world and the creation of man and the beginning of sin. But how did this murder get in here? What's that got to do with the, anything? I mean, that's not on the same lofty level as the creation of the world or the creation of man, or even the beginning of sin. But I have concluded that that's very perceptive because in chapter 3, he introduces sin, and in chapter 4, he illustrates the nature of sin and its violence. Now, uh, we live in a very civilized society. We're not uncivilized and barbarian but the simple reality is that the essence and the nature of the wicked heart we all have is to destroy somebody that's why Jesus said if you had hate you've already committed murder it's the same thing in seed form now think about that somebody crosses you and what do you immediately think why didn't he just drop dead right somebody gets in your way climbing the ladder of success and what you wish is that he'd get transferred or get moved to another company or get fired or just get a better job. Just get out of my way. What do you want to do? Eliminate him. Right? That is the essence of sin. We just want to eliminate other people. And that is precisely what he's saying in this passage. Their feet is swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. The way of peace they have not known now here is the ultimate problem let's go back to the eye there is no fear of God before their eyes that is a quotation from Psalm 36 verse 1 the eye was that part by which a person was led and uh, there is no fear of God a little term fear of God in the Old Testament there's a significant phrase used to describe a person's uh, whole relationship to God. It includes reverence and trust. And uh, what this passage is saying is there's no fear of God in their eyes because they don't give God the time of day. God is of no consequence. It's not a consideration. He is not a consideration in their reckoning or in their reasoning. Now, uh, the ultimate problem is that they have left God out, verse 18. They have consequently become sinners, verses 10 to 17. And the point is they're under sin. Now, I am not suggesting, nor do I think as Paul suggesting, that every individual has done everything thing mentioned in this passage, but I think that Paul is putting his finger on the pulse of the nature of sin, that this is certainly latent in all of us. The difference between the man in jail and the man on the street is not uh, what they are. It's only what they've done, that both have felt the same tendencies to steal or lie, or commit immorality, or to kill. One man gave vent to his feelings and ended up in jail, and the other didn't. I might remind you, and this is but one illustration, that all it took for thousands of people to go on a shopping spree in New York City in 1977 and steal was that the lights go out. Remember the blackout of 1977 in New York City? And thousands of people rushed into the department stores and stores and stole things like they would never have done if the lights were on. So the simple reality is that we camouflage it all most of the time. But if you look past the deceit of the tongue and get down through the throat down to the heart you will find the stench of death let the lights go out and you'll see what the nature of man is really like all are under sin now Let me say again, I am not saying that every individual has done every one of these things. I am not saying that every individual has broken every one of the Ten Commandments. I'm saying that every individual has sinned and is under sin and has broken at least one of the Ten Commandments. Granted, some are worse than others, at least from man's point of view. But all are in the state of sin. That's his point. All are under sin. They're in the state of sin. Let me illustrate. In the state of New York, I'm sorry, in the state of California, it is possible to go to the lowest spot on the North American continent, Death Valley, to thousands of feet above sea level on the top of a mountain. Now, if you were in Death Valley, you're below sea level. On the seashore in California, you're at sea level. And on the mountain, you're thousands of feet above sea level. Now, the guy on the seashore could look down his nose at the man in Death Valley and say, I'm higher than you. And the man on the mountain could look at the fellow on the seashore and say, but I'm higher than you. But all are in the state of California. California. Now, in a very similar fashion, some have sinned more than others. Some have committed more kinds of sins than others. But all are in a state of sin. They are all under sin. Now, I entitled this The Awesome Conclusion, and I haven't given it to you yet. We've seen in a general way that all are under sin, and he's proven that from the Scripture, but that's not the conclusion. That's not the awesome conclusion. That's stated in verses 19 and 20. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now, he says we know that whatever the law says, and that's clearly a reference to verses 10 to 18, it says to those under the law, namely the Jews. Now, he is assuming he's going to give us the conclusion, not just from chapter 3 or from chapters 2 and 3, but all the way back to 118 if I can show that the Jew, the one that had the advantage of having the Scripture, the one that thought he was righteous, if I can show that from the law, those who are under the law are under sin, then every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will become guilty before God. Notice very carefully the little word guilty is the only time that word occurs in the New Testament it is a forensic term and the idea behind that term is clearly the concept of judgment behind that little word guilty is the idea that you have been brought before the judgment bar of a court that all of the evidence has been presented and you have been found guilty and are worthy of punishment. So serious and so severe is this conclusion that he says in verse 19 that every mouth must be stopped. The guilt is so apparent that you are speechless. The picture is of a man standing before God, the judgment of God. And perhaps he is trying to practice in heaven what he practiced on earth, namely the deceit mentioned in this list. And all of a sudden, someone has arrived like they do on the 11 o'clock news film at 11 and on this film they've caught him in the act and that has been played before the court and there he is on the screen guilty of just what he's been charged with and he's dumbfounded he's guilty that is the awesome conclusion It's not just that men are sinful. We knew that. It's not even just that they were under sin. It's that as they stand before God, they're guilty, and they don't have a thing to say. The awesome conclusion has to do with judgment, not just sin. Now, there's more, as if that isn't bad enough. He says, verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Now, in order to understand his point in verse 20, you have to go back to verse 19. He said in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law. So he has used the law to prove what? Our sinfulness, our guilt. Therefore, if it is the law that proves we are guilty, the conclusion is, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. You cannot be justified. By the deeds of the law well then why was the law given well he says the latter part of verse 20 for by the law is the knowledge of sin now put these two things together the law only was put there for to teach us that we're sinners not so we could be justified but now put these two things together I, the man is standing before God, he's caught red-handed so to speak, he's guilty, his mouth is stopped, and to make it all even worse, there's nothing he can do to be justified. And that was particularly applicable to the Jew who thought that he could keep the law and be justified. And Paul is saying, oh, but don't you see, it's that law that proves we're all under sin. We're all guilty. That isn't going to help you. It's awesome. I mean, it's awesome. Now, there's something we need to note here. We're going to talk more about later. But the word justify means to declare righteous. Not make righteous, declare righteous. It's a legal term. It's a forensic term. Declare righteous. So he's saying this man is going to stand before God and from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and especially his heart, he's guilty before God. There's nothing he can do to declare himself righteous. No flesh is going to be justified in the sight of God based on what he did. Now, folks, I'm telling you, that's awesome. Let's summarize all this, and let's talk about it for a second. What I'm telling you is that in this passage he is saying that his conclusion concerning man's spiritual condition, and it's confirmed by the Scriptures is that all are under sin. And I think you've got to relate the little phrase under sin in verse 9 with the conclusion in verses 19 and 20. Meaning, we're silently guilty before God, and we cannot be justified by doing what God required in the law, because by the law is the knowledge of sin, and no flesh can be justified by it. Or to say the same thing another way, In verse 9, he says we are under sin. In verse 19, he says we are guilty before God. And in verse 19, our mouths must be stopped. And in verse 20, we cannot be justified by our own efforts. So this passage moves from sin to guilt to judgment to wrath. And that's the conclusion. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And in chapter 2, he talked about the fact that we would be judged by the law of God based on our works, and by that standard, nobody will be justified before God. So the awesome conclusion of the book of Romans is not just that man is a sinner or not even that he's under sin, but that he is guilty before God and there's nothing, there is nothing he can do to be made righteous in the sight of God. one fellow said, you might as well try to cross a river on a millstone. Let's try to get the word heaven by doing some kind of good works. Now, this is awesome, people. This is awesome. The book of Romans has a way of just leveling everybody. Makes us all nothing. I've chosen to call this the awesome conclusion. You look up the word awesome in the dictionary, you'll discover that it means fear, terror. What I'm telling you is the dreadful, terrifying conclusion is that we're all under sin. We're guilty before God. We'll be judged, and there's no escape. There's no escape. I must confess to you, I think if you had asked me before I started studying Romans, what's man's problem, I would have said, well, he's a sinner. Right? Well, that's true. But now that I've studied the first three chapters of Romans, I've come to the conclusion it's a whole lot more serious than that. It's a whole lot more serious than that. I think we get sin piped into our living rooms via the TV tube every evening. I mean, we've seen so much of it. We're so educated and sophisticated when it comes to sin. We, we know all about it, right? Just pick up the paper in the morning and read it. On every page, you'll see about it. Or go to work, and they'll talk about it. Most of your friends, or maybe even you, are practicing a lot of it, right? We know all about that, so we get immune to it. That doesn't bother us anymore. Well, let me tell you what's awesome about all that. What's awesome is not just that we stand a little. is that we're going to have to stand before God. Now, you can fool your parents, and you can fool your peers, and you can fool the preacher, but when you stand before God, there's going to be guilty silence. And we're all going to be found under sin with no hope of justifying ourselves before God. I mean, this is one more awesome passage of Scripture. Now, of course, there is a solution, and you're just waiting for me to say it. It is that Jesus Christ died to pay for all of that And when I trust in him, I'm forgiven. And I not only will make it through the judgment, I won't even be at that judgment. I'll be with him. One of the most magnificent explanations of that is in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. But that's next time. Before we close this study, let me just remind you again that what I'm telling you is that the first three chapters of Romans are talking about the wrath of God and the judgment of God, and that is the awesome conclusion of man's spiritual condition before God. He is a sinner, and he will face the judgment of God. I just want to press that home because we don't hear talk like that and we certainly don't hear much preaching like that, but that's what Romans is about. Matter of fact, I don't even think we like the idea of judgment at all. It makes us nervous. You know, talk about something else. Talk about love, not justice. So we push it out of our thinking or worse yet, we deny it. So I just want you to know God will judge. Whether you like the idea or not, or face it very often or not, this book is teaching that all men are going to stand before God and they'll be found without excuse. Is that what this book is teaching? It really is. All the more reason we should go tell them about the love of God in Jesus Christ. But don't be deceived. That judgment is coming. In a rural area, there was a farmer who particularly liked to taunt the Christians. His farm was right across the road from the small white frame country church. And he delighted in plowing his field on Sunday. He would particularly plow that portion of his field right across the road from that little church on Sunday. When the end of the season came, he had worked seven days a week and he harvested a bumper crop. He then wrote a letter to the editor of the local newspaper and he said, "Uh, I've worked hard all year. I've even worked on Sunday deliberately. I've even plowed in front of the church and I've reaped a bumper crop and made more money than I've ever made before. All of which goes to show There is no God. What you got to do is just work real hard and make a lot of money. Well, there was a Christian who wrote in answer to that a letter to the editor, and in it he said, What that fellow forgot is God does not settle all of his accounts in October. Now, just because you think you're getting away with it now, don't be deceived into thinking you will get away with it when you stand before God. Because just because he hasn't settled his accounts yet doesn't mean he won't. And when he does, I'm here to tell you, you're without hope unless you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Although most of us listening to this message are well aware that we're sinners, being reminded that there's a judgment that makes us even more grateful that your Son has borne our punishment on the tree and delivered us from that judgment. Thank you. Father, bring to our minds, our hearts, the realities, the spiritual realities of what is going to be so that we won't be lethargic, lazy, but that we'll readily tell people about your Son so they can avoid the judgment to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.